Let me just ask this question. How many of you are either in a new church plant or are planning to do a church plant? Give me a wave. Awesome. That's a good percentage of folks. That's great. And uh, I know you particularly probably will be really, really helped this evening. The International Economist magazine recently coined a new phrase, pastorpreneurs. Speaking of a new generation of American pastors that were emerging. And uh, while Mark is very enterprising with the ministry that he's involved with, I believe that he stands in a much more important calling than that. And uh, he's here tonight, I believe, as an apostle, sent of God to his church, and to help us make a difference. His church in Seattle is rapidly growing, well past 7,000 people. And um, many of us here, many of our leaders within the Destiny Ministries Network are tuning into his podcast. I think about 10 million people have uh, downloaded messages which they are finding helpful in their journey. Every once in a while, someone comes along that helps advance the cause of Christ globally. And uh, I think Mark falls into that category. And uh, I think many of us, particularly in this country, find ourselves unusually attracted to an American ministry because this is far more than bubble and froth, but deep substance, especially in the word that he carries, the importance he gives to God's word, training leaders, valley for the church, and reaching our nations for Jesus. I'm so glad that he's here to be with us. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's give Mark Driscoll a big, big welcome this evening. not mess it up. That was quite an introduction. Uh, with all sincerity, uh, I want to thank uh, Peter and Andrew. We have been uh, exceedingly well treated. Uh, my family and I are here, my wife and my five little kids, two, four, six, eight, and ten years of age, and really enjoying uh, really a great holiday, and we're exceedingly glad for that. Um, two things I would say that have been particularly impressive for me. One, a deep focus on Jesus accompanying that an appropriate humility uh, by the leaders of the movement. And uh, I so rarely see that, uh, including in myself, that uh, I find it <laughs> tremendously encouraging. Uh, so I will uh, have the great joy of preaching tonight. Uh, Peter said to go as long as I want, so we'll have breakfast in a bit. Um, I will pray in a moment. And if we have time at the end, I will answer questions. Um, unless you're Glaswegian, and then I will not have any idea <laughs> what in the world you are saying. I met a few of those guys, and even the Pentecostals just are like, we don't, we don't know what they're talking about, those guys. Uh, even the guys with the gift of interpretation are just utterly lost with the Glaswegians. Uh, so uh, we will pray for you, um, but we won't answer any of your questions. So... Uh, I will go ahead and uh, pray, and I'll, I'll say this, my sermon tonight is a, a little unusual and unique in that you are primarily leaders and teachers and preachers, and so uh, I'm not going to tell a lot of jokes. This will be a, a pretty intense, rigorous sermon. I've got one shot with you, and uh, as I thought and prayed about it on this trip, I believe this is my most important message on this trip. And so uh, I'm going to speak to you about the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. 
And in that, I seek to offend no one. I'm not, assuming, I'm not assuming rather that you do not know about Jesus and his work on the cross. But I think it is so important for us to continually come back to the centerpiece of all that we believe and all that we've received. And so my intent is to preach the gospel to you tonight because you spend your life preaching the gospel and sometimes it's good just to hear it. And so my hope is to give the gospel to you as a gift. So I will pray and uh, we will get to work. Father God, I begin by acknowledging that uh, I have no right to preach your word. I have no right to serve your people. It is solely and utterly and totally by grace that I have any relationship with you, uh, that I have a new nature and heart, that I have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. God, it is humbling and it is exceedingly joyful to be used for your kingdom purposes. Uh, God, I pray for those who have uh, come to be with us this evening. I pray your encouragement upon those who are struggling in their work. I pray for discernment and strength for those who are planting and in the very hard labor of the early years. I pray for those, Lord God, whose ministries are growing and they're straining with needs for more leaders and dollars and seats. I pray, Lord God, for their provision as well. I pray for, as well, Lord God, the families that are represented here, that the marriages and the children would not be sacrificed in the name of the gospel, uh, but they would be put in first position of priority as a demonstration of the gospel. And Father God, we pray as well for this particular congregation. We thank you for my dear brother Peter, who is a gracious, a gracious man. I pray, Lord God, for his fundraising, for his new building. I thank you that it seats far many more than this. And I ask in Jesus' name that you would be about the work of saving more than enough people to fill it multiple times over. And we ask for that in short order. And so God, as we open your word tonight, it is our prayer that Jesus would be the center and sum of all that we learn and that the Holy Spirit would make that possible as we invite him to do his work in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us, as we ask this in Jesus' good name, amen. I'll, uh, I'll start by reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 2. All preachers know this text. Paul says this, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And sadly on that point, many commentators will say, Paul was there speaking in a way that is hyperbolic and he is making a point by overstating his point and I might submit to you that he is not that the only thing that can, should, must, and continually needs to be preached is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what we have to give. And apart from the crucifixion of Jesus, we have nothing to offer anyone because it is the absolute centerpiece of our faith and it is absolutely in every way the centerpiece of the good news of the gospel. On that point, uh, I would say to you that here is what I have observed in my brief stay here, uh, someone asked me today, what have you learned in being here? I've learned a great deal. What I have learned as well that is terrifying is that it takes three generations to lose the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third forgets and denies it. That's what I've seen. Not among all churches, and I don't want to overstate the case, but it seems like the history of the Reformation and the deep rootedness of the gospel was in one generation believed deeply to the degree that I think we could argue that the Reformation took root more deeply in this country than perhaps any other. 
but somehow the next generation assumed far too much. As a result, now there are ensuing generations that have forgotten what it means to even be Christian and or are denying it altogether. And so you and I, as ministers of the gospel and servants of the gospel, we can never assume anything. We cannot assume that when we say Jesus, people know who we're talking about. When we say Bible, they know what it means. When we say God, that they understand our definition. Or when we use words like cross or sin, that there is any assumption that anyone has any idea what we are articulating. So I would say to you, my encouragement would be, do not assume anything. Maintain multiple generations of believing and do not allow a generation of assuming to set in because that is the inevitable decline toward denying what was once believed. And this is particularly true about the cross of Jesus Christ, the centerpiece of the gospel. On that point, Martin Luther commentating on Galatians 2.14 says this, He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and I love this line, beat it into their heads continually. I love that. That our job is to just continually beat the gospel into the heads of our people so that we don't assume anything, they don't forget it, and they subsequently do not have an opportunity to deny it. So I'm gonna talk to you about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when we speak of the crucifixion of Jesus, it is the great jewel of our faith. And many theological traditions love one side of that jewel. Now the result is that sometimes there is not a full appreciation for all of Jesus' atoning work on the cross because there is such an affection for a particular aspect. So tonight my intent is to share with you 11 aspects of the cross, 11 sides of the great jewel of our faith, And in that, I'm also going to articulate that it is to be found in the setting of Jesus' life. So when I speak of his crucifixion, I'm including his incarnation, God became a man, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily burial, and his resurrection, as well as his ascension back into heaven where Jesus is seated on a throne, ruling over all tribes, languages, nations, peoples, colors, races, sexual orientations, over all times, places, and circumstances as King, Lord, and God over all. And within that, I'll start by explaining to you crucifixion because I believe sometimes it is easy to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and move on without fully emotionally encountering the significance of what we are articulating. Crucifixion was created about 500 BC by the Persians and it continued until 300 AD when it was ceased by the Roman Emperor Constantine. About 800 years crucifixion was practiced and it was the most horrendous mode of death. A word was actually invented to articulate the pain experienced through crucifixion, that being excruciating. That word literally means from the cross. On that point, uh, the philosopher Cicero said that good Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of the cross because it was too horrifying for decent citizens to even contemplate. The Jewish historian Josephus called it, quote, the most wretched of deaths. 
And we read in Deuteronomy 21, 23, that cursed is every man who is hung on a tree. So for God's people, the thought of God himself being crucified was altogether unbelievable because how could God himself be cursed? Yet crucifixion was commonly practiced. On the day that Spartacus fell in battle, 6,000 men were crucified along the shoulder of a highway in one day. This was done openly and publicly. People were crucified in the equivalent of our shopping malls and grocery stores. They literally were crucified in a public manner to humiliate them. The worst members of society would gather and jeer at them and mock them and make fun of them. And the person who was being crucified in an effort to defend themselves would urinate on those who had gathered below. They would writhe in pain. At times they would become incontinent and simply lose their ability to hold within themselves all of their crap. I don't know what the Scottish word is. Uh, I was trying to figure that out as I was going with little success. Um, And so what you would have is someone in this absolutely embarrassing, publicly humiliating state shouting at people, spitting on them, cursing at them, seeking to gain their vengeance. And this was such a horrible mode of death that they generally did not crucify women, but on the occasion that they did, they would turn the women around so that the women actually faced the cross because no one, even in that barbarous a society, wanted to see the face of a crucified woman. It is told that men, in an effort to hasten their death, would slouch, thereby having the air leave their lungs because crucifixion is painfully slow, death by asphyxiation. And so if they could slouch on the cross, the air would leave their lungs, thereby enabling them to die more readily. So a seat was placed under their buttocks to keep them upright so that they could die slowly. Some ancient records that are highly debatable actually say that they would take a spike and nail a man's penis to the cross to ensure that he didn't remove himself from the seat, thereby expediting his own death. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. As well, crucifixion, though rarely practiced, is occasionally practiced in the modern era. Adolf Hitler had Jews crucified in Dachau. Uh, It was Nazi soldiers who crucified allied soldiers with bayonets and knives through the throat and through the testicles up against barn doors and homes. Today, crucifixion is also practiced in Sudan, and it has been practiced by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. It is rare, but it still occurs, and some Christians to this day are still crucified. Now, perhaps what is most curious about crucifixion is that the cross became the most popular symbol in the history of the world, identifying the heart of our Christian faith. Uh, It is told that the crucifixion uh, was adopted as a symbol by Tertullian, one of the early church fathers. And there were early competing symbols to brand our faith. There was a fish and there was loaves and, and such things, a dove. And it was the cross that became the the marker of the true Christian. Christians began putting them on the doorposts of their homes and decorating their homes and wearing them and making the sign of the cross, thereby identifying themselves with the crucified 
cursed, condemned Jesus Christ. And today we see that it is now a fashion statement. Musicians, rock stars, pop celebrities, artists of various sorts and kinds wear the cross without any idea of what the cross means. And the question that begs to be answered then is knowing that this mode of death was public and shameful and painful and arduous and bloody and disgusting and accompanied with incontinence, how in the world could Christians declare this to be our good news? That's what we call it. We celebrate it every year on Good Friday. This is altogether curious. And so for us to understand why the crucifixion of Jesus is good news, we must move from the historical facts of the murder of Jesus to the theological significance that is revealed to us through Scripture. And so I'll start on my first of 11 aspects of the atonement or 11 sides of the great jewel of our faith with what most considered to be the central theme of Jesus' death, and that is substitutionary atonement. Now, I know some of you are saying, I studied this at Bible college, I studied this at seminary, I know this. I know that you know this. But we can't assume anything. In my country, there is a war that is brewing over substitutionary atonement. Some of the most popular, hip, cool, young, heretical, false teachers are denying substitutionary atonement. You've got Steve Chalk or Chalky, however you say it in Great Britain, saying that substitutionary atonement is akin to divine child abuse. You've got men like Brian McLaren who are endorsing those books. You've got men like Green who are writing books like Recovering the Scandal of the Cross that are encouraging us to abandon substitutionary atonement altogether. You have feminist interpretations of the cross. You have Marxist interpretations of the cross. But what we don't have is a rigorous biblical understanding of the cross. And so I'm saying this to you, that substitutionary atonement will be, if it is not already, a hill on which you must war. You must war. J.I. Packer, Leon Morris, great theologians who have written extensively on the cross say that this is the issue regarding the cross of Jesus. That if we lose this, we lose the gospel. D.A. Carson, in an interview in the United States on this issue, he's one of the greatest New Testament scholars in the world and a dear friend. He said, if words mean anything, I believe that those who have denied the, the substitutionary atonement have essentially lost the Christian faith. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'll give you some reasons. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for. That little word for is incredibly important. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even little words like for have big implications. The Bible keeps using the word for, and what it does in so doing, it transitions from the death of Jesus to the theological meaning to the interpretation, to the historical significance. He was wounded, Isaiah 53, 5, for what? Our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. 
Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, the shortest summation of the gospel in the New Testament. Christ died for our sins. And lastly, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now we know that God said in Genesis 2, when you sin, you will die. The wage or penalty for sin, Paul echoes, is death. That sin results in death. Now here's what happened in the garden. John Stott in his great book on the cross makes this point. That in the garden, you and I, our first parents, I should say, Adam and Eve, in our place, they created the first act of substitution. Adam and Eve substituted themselves for God. They decided they would be God. They would make their own laws, they would be their own judge, and they would live according to their own understanding. They substituted themselves for God. So in great love, God, Jesus Christ, comes into human history and substitutes himself for us in our place for our sins. Jesus' substitution undoes our substitution. As we took the place of God, God came to take our place and save us from our foolish selves and our deep passion for sinful rebellion. And so in this, when we're talking about substitutionary atonement, what we're talking about is really the whole fulfillment of what was intended on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay, those of you who have studied the Old Testament, you know that Yom Kippur was the great high holy day of the year. And that that day was all about substitution. That the whole Old Testament was in many ways simply foreshadowing, anticipating, leading up to the coming of Jesus. And on Yom Kippur, there was the high priest who would bring forth an animal that would act in a substitutionary way. And the high priest would name the sins of the nation over that animal that was to be without blemish, showing the blamelessness of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus, and he would confess the sins of the people, and then he would slit the throat of the animal, and it would twitch, and it would bleed, and it would die as a substitute. Old Testament religion is exceedingly bloody and violent to show what was to happen to Jesus. And in substitution, sin was atoned for until the coming of Jesus, at which time what had been done in faith was ultimately realized in the perfect substitute. So God's people were waiting for their substitute. And every year they, they sacrificed during Yom Kippur, awaiting the coming of their Messiah to die for their sins. Now practically, here's what this means. You murdered God. That's what that means. I killed God. I killed God. That's how serious my sin is. And that's how wonderful Jesus is. That I murdered God. That God came on a mission to rescue me and I murdered him. He died for my sin. And in so doing, he paid my penalty of death. And as my substitute, as my substitute, he endured what I deserve to give me what I don't. If you lose substitution, you lose any real gratitude for Jesus. So Jesus is our substitute. That's the big idea, okay? We'll move quickly through 10 others. 
Secondly, Jesus is our victor. My charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, this tends to be your favorite. You like this one, right? This is your favorite. Christus victor, Jesus conquered Satan and demons. You love this one, and you should, because we don't like Satan or demons, okay? I'll give you my favorite verse on this, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses, we were dead to God as sinners. We were alive to sin, but we were dead to God and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, past, present, and future, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that Satan and demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That Jesus Christ, the promise was made in the Proto-Evangelion of Genesis 3.15, that he would come and he would put a boot to the head of Satan. And Jesus comes and on the cross, it looks like he is defeated. It looks in every way as though he is defeated and Satan has conquered him. On this point, Martin Luther liked to meditate on Isaiah 45, 15, which says, surely you are a God who hides. God hid victory in defeat because God is humble. And because Satan is proud, he didn't see it. And those who are proud still don't see it. But those who are humble do. And what happened on the cross is that our sins, the sins that Satan and demons rightly have, against us. They rightly consider us conquered foes. In sinning, we have aligned ourselves with Satan. One of the great tragedies of modern liberalism is the denial of the supernatural and the denial of the demonic. And one of the great tragedies of pop spirituality is you are told that being spiritual is good and spirit is synonym for demon. If it's not the Holy Spirit and an angel, then it's Satan and or a demon. It's not good to be spiritual. That Satan came to disarm the spirits. Satan came to crush evil spirits. You must not be embarrassed to tell your people that there is a real Satan and there are real demons and there's a real spiritual war and they're really at work in the world. And their work includes Revelation 12.10 says, accusing people. This often happens pastorally. You will find in the third person, you are a loser. You are a failure. You should die. You are not forgiven. You are not a real Christian. You should kill yourself. Satan loves to accuse the children of God, Revelation 12.10 says, and he accuses them day or night. There are people who are haunted and you can tell it's Satan and demons. And when I ask my parishioners, What is it that they think they have negative self-talk? I'll ask, what do you say to yourself? What exact words do you use? They say, you are this and you are that. It's third person. It's demonic accusation. It's not them talking to themselves. They're not always bipolar, paranoid, schizophrenic, and or multiple personality. They may have that, but sometimes it's a junk drawer diagnosis for people who are being attacked by a real enemy who really is speaking to them, really is accusing them, really is condemning them, really is haunting them with past sin, really is causing them to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, 
really is the father of lies who keeps lying to them and really is one who loves death and wants to kill them. And the imagery here is this, that when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and in so doing, canceled any right that Satan demons have toward the children of God, which is wonderful. So now Jesus' victory is our victory and Jesus' conquering of our enemy is the victory that he's given to us. And the language here is taken from antiquity that when two kings would go to war and they would collide, when one king conquered the other, he would disarm the king and all of his soldiers, strip them naked, chain them together, and then drag them back into his kingdom. And the king would ride out front and the whole, the whole nation would declare a holiday and they would gather around to celebrate the victory of the king and the conquering of their enemy and the defeat of their foe and the liberation of their lives. And they would celebrate as a national holiday and following the king and following the victorious soldiers and warriors were all the defeated foes. And last to be drug into town was the defeated king. That's the exact imagery that he uses in Colossians 2. That Satan has been defeated by Jesus. That he and demons have been disarmed by Jesus. And that through Jesus Christ, there is victory over Satan and demons for the children of God. Third one. This could be a one. Jesus is our redemption. Titus 2, 13 and 14 says it this way. It speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. There's our word, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is our redeemer. When you teach this, don't mess it up. Everybody messes it up. Don't mess it up. What you've been told is that the concept of redemption is taken from the pagan slave market where there's a slave being sold and and then someone comes and purchases the slave and then they're free. That's not the truth. If you teach that, what you're teaching your people is that the concept of Jesus the Redeemer is borrowed from paganism. The Bible does not update pagan thinking. Those who believe that 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 the concept here is pagan slave market in my country, which is what sends the horrible theological pollution around the world, so I apologize for that. They say since the Bible uses pagan concepts to explain Jesus' death, we should use pagan concepts as well. We should speak of Jesus' death in terms of radical environmentalism, hardcore feminism, uh, the New Age, and I say no. The Bible in the concept of the Redeemer does not borrow its imagery from paganism. It takes it from the Exodus. If you want to study this, do a word study on Redeemer, Redemption, Redeem, and just take it from Genesis forward. It keeps continually, dozens of times, going back to the Exodus. And here's what happened in the Exodus. God's people are in slavery. They have been for more than 400 years. They're ruled over by a cruel taskmaster who despises them and disrespects them and disregards them. And the real God shows up, just absolutely destroys the Pharaoh, and then liberates his children to be free to worship him. That's redemption. Redemption is not taken from paganism. It's taken from the Exodus. And a man like Paul would never use paganism to teach you about God. He would use the Old Testament. And when you tell people that 
that they have been redeemed. Here's the point. They're in slavery. They're slaves to sin. They can't stop. People want to argue all the time, I'm free, I'm free. No, you're not. You're not free to stop sinning. You're not free to stop committing idolatry. You're not free to know God. You're not free to love God. You're not free to worship God. You're not free to live forever with the living God. You're not free. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to death. And there's no way you could possibly escape. And Jesus went to the cross and he there conquered Satan and sin and death. And just like the children of Israel ran out of Egypt to go worship God, led by Miriam singing with songs of gladness and redemption. So the children of God are freed by the cross of Jesus to to be liberated from sin, addiction, compulsion, idolatry, selfishness, whatever they are enslaved to, they are liberated through the cross of Jesus to run free and live new lives and have joy and sing songs and worship God together as his people. Fourth one, new covenant sacrifice. This is systematic theology if you weren't paying attention. New covenant sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. By the way, that verse is one of the reasons I hate tradition. Feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's a good definition of tradition. Going forward. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Blood is something that is spoken of continually in the Bible. More than 450 times the Bible speaks of blood. Almost every time the Bible speaks of blood, it does so in conjunction with death. The reason people don't like to talk about blood, think about blood, see blood, or smell blood is because it disgusts them. And God continually links sin with death and blood so that we will identify the horror of blood and death with sin. In so doing, God is telling us he is as disgusted by sin as we are by blood. Just as you don't want to see blood, as you don't want to smell blood, as you don't want to touch blood because it disgusts you, God identifies it with the penalty for sin, which is death, so that we will be as horrified by sin as as he is, that we'll be as horrified by our sin as we are by blood. We live in a world that exists in large part to not let anyone see blood. If you get sick, you go to the hospital. If you're dying, you don't die at home, you go to hospice or some sort of care. In a movie, when someone starts bleeding or a television show, the camera pans away, nobody wants to see the blood. In the Bible, the camera always pans in and it holds a steady shot until you are really disturbed. And the reason is God says, I feel that disgusted by sin. And the whole point of the old covenant leading up to Jesus was that there needed to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. There needed to be the payment of death for the doing of misdeeds. Who was the first person to shed blood in the Bible? God. Adam and Eve sinned, and God slaughtered to cover their sin. The slaughter and the bloodshed is always to cover the sin. From that point forward, it is a bloody book. Noah gets off the ark, and the first thing he does, 
offers a sacrifice. Why? Because he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he should have died in the flood. He knows that apart from God's grace, he too should have perished. And I'll prove this to you, another rabbit trail. Genesis 6, almost everyone messes up Noah, and in so doing, they butcher the gospel, and they teach it this way. Noah was a good man, and so he got to live, and all the bad guys drown. The moral of the story is God loves the good guys. God hates the bad guys. If you read the verse in context, it says that God, uh, that rather Noah found favor. It's the Hebrew word for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then it says he was a righteous man. Noah was saved by imputed righteousness, just like you and I. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So as soon as he gets off of the boat after the flood, he offers a sacrifice saying, I should have died too. God should have, should have shed my blood. I'm just as sinful as everyone who died. And then he proves it by getting naked and passing out drunk in his tent. <laughs> Peter says he was a righteous man. And I say, that must have been imputed righteousness because if I do that, I lose my job. Now, as well, the way this would work in the Old Testament, right, would be the sacrificial system, the shedding of blood. And in this, there were people who would literally bring their own sacrifice, literally bring their own sacrifice. I am a sinner. I need a substitute. Blood needs to be shed because I deserve to die. That is how the Old Testament works. And then we get to the New Covenant, Jeremiah, Paul in the New Testament. They distinguish Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Covenant's foreshadowing, New Covenant's fulfillment. All of a sudden, the New Covenant, Hebrews is almost entirely written on these points. We don't need a priest. Who do we have? We got Jesus. We don't need a temple to be God's presence. What do we have? Jesus. We don't need a lamb. We have Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptizer says. So all of the Old Covenant leads up to the New Covenant, which is fulfilled in Jesus and the shedding of his blood for our sins. Therefore, when Jesus went to the cross and he declared, it is finished, all of the work of the new covenant was completed. And that was the final bloodshed that was necessary for the remission of sin. I, I told this story to a guy. He came into my office with his wife. They were having marital trouble. I'll tell you a pastoral story to illustrate the significance of this. How this understanding of the cross has massive pastoral implications. He comes in, his wife's pregnant, they're having some troubles, uh, he's a Christian, she's a brand new Christian, just became a Christian. He, he got saved a few months before her. We're talking, they have marital troubles, scrapping this and that. And I just looked at her. I said, look, I feel like you've got something you need to tell him. Just tell him, what is it? She had been hiding this deep, dark secret that throughout their marriage, she had been sleeping with his friend in their bed when he was at work. She'd never told him. And it had caused great distance, obviously, in the marriage. So she tells him this while she's pregnant, a few months before the birth of their first child. I had to, we had to physically, another pastor and I, had to escort him to another office because he was, he was livid. This man was ready to kill somebody. The thought of his friend in his house, in his bed, with his wife, destroyed him. The man was literally sitting in the chair, and I could still see him. He was gripping the arms of the chair, not blinking, nose completely flared, breathing deeply. And I looked at him. I said, okay, what do you want? 
Here's exactly what he said, great line. He said, I want blood. I said, well, your wife is a whore and you've already gotten your blood. A few months ago, she met Jesus. Jesus died for all her sins. You've already gotten your blood. You've already gotten your blood. So now you treat her the way Jesus treats her, with forgiveness and redemption. And Jesus brides a whore too. And so you do what he does and you love her well and you make her beautiful. They've been married happily since that point, not without struggle. They teach a Bible study together for newly married couples. And I'll tell you what I really love. I love seeing them serve communion together and she usually holds the cup. What's that represent? The blood. She knows what it means. She knows what it means. That she should have died and instead she's loved. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. And there are people who love justice and they want blood. And we tell them, you know what? You get it at the cross, you'll get your blood. You get your blood. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus shed his blood. You get your blood. Five, Jesus is our justification. Galatians 2.16 says it this way. A person is not justified by works of the law. That is rule keeping. That is, that is religion. That is making a list of good things to do and bad things not to do. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the point. God is holy. The imagery here is that God is judge, which he is, and that God is holy and righteous and good, and we are sinful, fallen, evil, depraved, corrupt, and bad. And how could we possibly stand before God and have him declare us righteous so that we might enter into his eternal presence? There is no way that God could just simply overlook our sin and still be just. Some say, why couldn't God let all people go to heaven? My point is simply, he would not be God, he would not be good, he would be Satan, and once we got there, we would all complain because it would look a lot like earth. <laughs> just sin and death. And none of us would say, thank you, Lord, for letting us all in. Furthermore, those who hate God would be the most angry because the last thing they want is to be with him forever. <laughs> and so what happens is, God is so good and so loving and so kind and so merciful. And Exodus 34, which is the most commonly quoted verse of Scripture in all of Scripture, is the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love, mercy, faithfulness, compassion, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's heart is love, grace, patience, mercy, forgiveness, but he has to deal with sinners because he's just and we are guilty. And to maintain his goodness, he must contend with our wickedness. And the question of justification, this is the issue of the Protestant Reformation, is how in the world can we stand before God? And stupid people will say, well, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. But the problem is God's standard is perfection. And no one would say, I'm perfect. God's standard, that's what Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard is perfection. This is in your thoughts, words, and deeds your motives, your intents. It includes sins of omission where you didn't do the thing you were supposed to and commission where you did the thing you weren't supposed to do. 
Jesus says it goes all the way down to the heart where lust counts as adultery and anger counts as murder. We stand before God. He knows, sees, judges all justly. How in the world can we become righteous? Now here's the truth. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We were made for righteousness. We desire righteousness and we can't live without righteousness. So we pursue righteousness through religion, what Paul calls the works of the law. There is soft religion, which people wouldn't consider a religion, but it is. It's justification by recycling. (laughs) Right? I'm a good person because I'm saving the environment. It's justification by driving a hybrid vehicle. It's justification by making sandwiches for homeless people. It's justification by doing some nice civil good. That's soft religion. Hard religion is as long. The reason that hard religion is so popular is people want righteousness. And if they don't understand the gospel, Martin says that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And so they pursue righteousness through religion. This explains the growing phenomena of hardcore religious Islam. People want righteousness. And so they want the hardest, firmest, most rigid religion they could find. And Islam offers that. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I was very religious. Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, faultless, you know, as to zeal, persecuting the church. And then he says in Philippians 3, 8, all this I consider what? Rubbish. Some translations say dung, dog dung, turd. The 1611 King James Version used the S word. Okay, that's how we are to view religion. Religion is our attempt to be a good person so that we can have righteousness. And God looks down and says, when you go to the bathroom, that's about how impressed I am with your performance. (laughs) Okay? Isaiah 64, 6, for you ladies, since we're equal opportunity offenders, he uses this amazing language to say that our righteousness is as what? Filthy menstrual rags, bloody tampons. So what what Isaiah is saying, or what Paul is saying, when you stand before God and God says, show me your righteousness. Here's my turd or my tampon. Here's what I have. None of you would be happy on your birthday if that was the offering. God is not pleased with religion. God hates religion. God despises religion. And I tell you this because if you only call sinners to repent of their sin and you don't call religious people to repent of their righteousness, you'll have a church that has no knowledge of the cross. Because what happens is when you call sinners to repentance, religious people like to stand off to the side and say, yes, those people are very sinful. They're not righteous as we are. When you then turn around to tell religious people to repent of their righteousness, you're calling them all to the cross all to the cross. And the problem with the truncated gospel is Jesus died for sinners, yes, and the worst sinners, the guys who murdered him, are the religious people who believe that righteousness is attained through human effort and works. So let me tell you this, when you preach the cross, don't just call sinners to repentance, call religious people to repent of their religious righteousness and see if they don't crucify you too. (laughs) What we know then is that righteousness is gift righteousness. It comes from Jesus, okay? It's a gift. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Jesus went to the cross, took all my sin. Luther goes further than most theologians and says he actually became the most defiled, despicable, disgusting, depraved thing in all creation. And he gives to me his righteousness, the great exchange. My death for his life, my sin for his holiness, my condemnation for his salvation, my separation from the Father for his intimacy with the Father. Paul says in Philippians 3, in that great section, he says, and I have obtained a righteousness that comes only through faith in Christ. Let me tell you what's so wonderful about this righteousness. There's so much. But two things I'll say. One, that righteousness is imputed and imparted. Imputed righteousness is your forensic legal standing, right? And the question is, when you stand before God, what will be on your resume? God looks at you and says, tell me why you are to be declared righteous. Paul says, I used to have a long resume. I was very religious. And now it has two words, Jesus Christ. That's what's on my resume. I stand before the Father. He says, okay, declare to me the source of your righteousness, Jesus Christ. That's it. I trust him finished work, I got a great gift, I'm taken care of. That's imputed righteousness. But in addition to that, there's imparted righteousness. And this closes what we'll call the gospel gap. The false, not false, but incomplete gospel is receive Jesus and then you get to die and go to heaven. It misses life. Okay? But that's where, because if you only focus on on justification and imputed righteousness, then you don't know what you're supposed to do until you die and stand before Jesus to be declared righteous. But if you believe in imparted righteousness, here's what imparted righteousness is. It's for life. Here's what imparted righteousness brings. New heart, new nature. Do you know what that new heart, that new nature has? New desires. Desires for obedience and holiness and Jesus and scripture and repentance and the Holy Spirit and ministry. New heart, new nature. That's the essence of the new covenant, Jeremiah says. New heart, new nature. And with that comes new desires. And with that comes new gifts to do ministry, spiritual gifts. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The source of imparted righteousness is the Holy Spirit. So new nature, new desires, new gifts. Not only that, new power through the Holy Spirit to live a new life with new instruction through the divinely inspired scriptures, with a new community as God's people, the church, with a new source of joy, a new source of purpose, and a new source of power. The result is that imparted righteousness allows the most exciting, passionate, fulfilling, thrilling, joyful life that is possible for any human being on the earth. And if you just say, Get your imputed righteousness and go to heaven. You miss the imparted righteousness. You miss the joyful, obedient, fruitful, faithful life doing ministry with, for, by, like, through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all imparted righteousness. Theologically, we call it regeneration. When we say Jesus is my righteousness, we mean all of that. Justification and regeneration. Imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, justified before God, 
whole new life with passion and joy and purpose through the Holy Spirit and a day when I get to stand before God and be declared righteous because of the finished work of Christ for a life that continues forever with Him. There's nothing that compares to this. There's nothing like this. No religion has a God this good. And one of the reasons we know that the Bible is not a myth is that no one would ever make something this good up. (laughs) Six, Jesus is our propitiation. Big words, but you're all highly trained professionals. This word appears four times in the Greek New Testament. Most translations don't include it. They say people don't know what the word propitiation means, so we'll put in other words like sacrifice of atonement. People don't know what that word means either, so I don't think it helps. (laughs) Use the word. It's a good word. 1 John 4.10 is one example. This is love. Not that we have loved God. See, that's why I freaking hate religion. Religion tells people if you are a good person, then God will love you. The gospel says, God has loved you. Look at the cross. Now you can live a new life. You don't obey so that God will love you. You obey because God already does. The gospel is so much better than religion. This is love. Not that we have loved God. Not that we went first. Not that we initiated. But that God has loved us. How do we know that? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The stupid people, they they, they say, stupid theologians, they're stupid. But they say things like, I don't believe in propitiation because how could a loving God propitiate? Propitiation is how God demonstrates his love. I mean, come on. We know God loves us because he propitiated our sin. You're all looking at me like, okay, here's what propitiation is. God hates sinners. You've been told, God loves the sinner, he hates the sin. No, he doesn't. Gandhi said that. Just so you know, he's on a totally different team than us. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms, God says he hates somebody. Says he hates groups like the Nicolaitans. Hates dudes like Esau. Hates those in Proverbs with haughty eyes. He hates all kind of people. (laughs) And someone says, I hate the sin, I love the sinner. That's dumb because we are by nature sinners. Like, I hate the essence, sum, and total of what you are, but I really like you. What the... We, we do what we are. We have an old nature. We commit old acts of sin. And so God, it says it in Psalm 5, 5. God says, I hate, or it says, you hate all who do evil. Now let this settle. People say things like, God doesn't hate anybody. Yes, he does. He hates tons of people. <laughs> he does. And some people say, that's not fair. I say, of course it's fair. You hate people. And God's far better than you, and he knows a lot more people. (laughs) God hates sinners, and he hates their sin. I I preach this doctrine of propitiation. Okay, now, third time I preached it on a Sunday. We've got a lot of services. A guy pulled a knife, tried to get up on the stage to kill me. So people will respond to this doctrine, okay? (laughs) But when you, I preach propitiation. This is not a, this is, this is not a lie. We grew the next week by 800 people in the least church city in America. People walked in, God hates me. I never heard that. (laughs) That's because they're liars. 
It's like kicking somebody in the middle and they go get their friends. Boy, he kicks really hard. You gotta feel this. <laughs> oh yeah, that hurts like crazy. <laughs> I can't explain it, but it works. God hates sinners. He, he works it out through his wrath, okay? God's wrath is mentioned more than 600 times in the Bible. If you have a bucket of verses that say love and a bucket of verses that say wrath, wrath is a bigger bucket. The whole God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the wrong place to start. God hates you and it's going to go really, really bad forever. Okay, that is true. Now, people may say, I don't like that, but they'll think about it. And what happens with propitiation is that Jesus stands in our place and the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. I want you to see the masculine suffering of Jesus. Right? He is dying by suffering the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and it is thereby propitiated, diverted, taken away from sinners who are in Jesus Christ. I love this. People come up to me and they say, Pastor Mark, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? My question is, how could a holy God take anyone to heaven? That's a mystery to me. Hell I get. You tried, you failed, you lose, you burn. I got it. Totally consistent. You try, you fail, you lose, you get a blessing. That's all a gift. People need to know how good God is, how angry God is, so they understand how significant Jesus is. If they run, I'm under the wrath of God, I need to go to Jesus and I need to be propitiated. This is shown in the Passover when literally the wrath of God was going to visit every home except those who were covered literally by blood, substitution. And as they were covered by blood, so the wrath of God passed over them. Just as we are covered by the blood of Jesus, I think it's what, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb has been slain He's the blood that covers us so that the propitiating work of God is accomplished so that the wrath of God passes over. Jesus also is our expiation. What I hate about some English translations, seventh point, they confuse propitiation and expiation. They're they're both wonderful, but they're different. Propitiation is where the wrath of God is diverted from me. Expiation is my cleansing from sin. Okay, let me give you another insight on the gospel here. I really like the gospel. I would encourage you to preach it all the time. It's the best thing in the world. And when we talk about expiation, here's what we're dealing with. How many of you have not only sinned, but been sinned against? See, the problem with the traditional God, well, again, the problem with an incomplete gospel is if you're a sinner, confess your sins to God and he will forgive you. I totally believe that, that's substitutionary atonement. But what if you've been sinned against? What if you've been raped? As a third of the women in my church have been. What if you've been molested? What, the, what do you do? Do you go to God and say, God, I confess the fact I was raped. Please forgive me for being raped? How does that gospel work? People come to your church every week. Some of them will be ready to confess their sins, but some of them are more familiar with sins that are committed against them, and that may be the place that the gospel begins. And here's what happens. I'll read you the verse uh, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, the cross, what? Purifies or cleanses us from what? All unrighteousness. 
all unrighteousness. Sin in the Bible is connected with defilement, right? When you read the Old Testament, you hear words like defile, defilement, ritual cleansing, ceremonial washing, housekeeping. What is all of that? It's showing that sin is filthy. It's dirty. It, it defiles us. There are people in the Bible who are considered defiled. They're made dirty. How do they get clean? Talk to a rape victim. I said, what did you do after you were raped? She said, I took a shower. I said, why? She said, I felt dirty. This was her word. I felt dirty to my soul. That's defilement. She's been defiled. She's been made unclean. There was one girl in our church. She had been raped repeatedly as a little girl by older men, uncles, grandfathers, and such. She got fired from a job working at a hardware store for having sex with five young men at one time on a break at the job. I asked her, I said, why did you do that? She said, when I was little, my uncles, my grandpas would tell me, you're a dirty little girl, so you do dirty little things. She said, so I am a dirty girl, and because I'm a dirty girl, I do dirty things. I said, man, you need to understand the doctrine of expiation. Jesus will enable you not to be a dirty girl and you don't need to continue doing dirty things. How many people are working out of identity that's not what they've done, but what's been done against them, not what Jesus has done for them? It's all identity issues. I talked to, and what happens is people become defiled, their bodies become defiled, places become defiled. I talked to one little, one young woman she, when she started developing in her teen years, she would go to bed and her dad would crawl into bed, read her Bible stories, and then molest her, fondle her. And he would masturbate in her bed and then he would tell her, I'm your father, you're supposed to submit to your father, don't tell anybody, the Bible says to obey your daddy. And this little girl was told to sleep in her bed with her father's semen all the time. I asked her, I said, when you were a little girl, what did you do? She said, when he would leave, I would get out of my bed and I would crawl under the bed and I would sleep on the floor. I said, why? She said, the bed was dirty. She got married and every time her husband climbed into bed, she just had a panic attack. He said, I don't know why, I love her. You know, I'm kind to her, I'm ten- I don't understand. We got this story out of her. This was her childhood by her quote unquote Christian father. So being in bed with a man for her was defiled because she was defiled. This is a huge issue. Depression, medication, suicide, kids who cut themselves, they're all crying out for the cross. The doctrine of expiation is shown for us in the second goat on the day of Yom Kippur atonement. The first goat was the sacrificial goat. What was the second goat? Scapegoat. Sins confessed but not slaughtered, sent free. The, the sin was laid on the animal and it was taken away. Well, the sin was laid on Jesus and on the cross, he took it away. So now we're not defined by what we've done or what's been done against us, but why Jesus has done for us on the cross. And the blood of Jesus, First John 1 says, cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. That's why in the Bible, what color do God's people often wear? What color are the worshipers around the throne of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, back to the cross? In Revelation, those who gather around the throne, what color do the worshipers wear? White. It says white linen was given the bride of Christ, the church, to wear. Why? 
Expiation, she's clean. I'll tell you one last story on this expiation doctrine. I think it's very important, completely overlooked. Those who confuse propitiation and expiation, they miss the great gospel opportunity. And those translations who put expiation in where propitiation should be, ah, they really do great injustice. But this friend of mine, uh, he was married to this woman. They had had some marital difficulties. They loved each other. She finally, after some years of marriage, confessed to him her deep, dark secret, that she had been very promiscuous as a young woman. She had uh, committed adultery as a single woman with married men, that she had been molested and abused by relatives, and that when they were engaged, she was sexually active with another man and lied to him and never told him because she knew he would not marry her. This has affected their marriage for years because there was distance, there was sin between them. And she finally came clean and told her husband, I cheated on you when we were engaged. I had sex with another man. I did sexual favors for him. And this man, to his credit, he really understood the gospel. He did one of the most beautiful things. He left. She's, of course, worried. And he comes back and he asks her to undress. And he takes out of a box a brand new white nightgown and puts it on her and says, I see you through the cross. I see you through what Jesus did. People teach others now on marriage. Not because they're highly trained psychologists, but because they understand the gospel. That when he looks at his wife, he needs to see her in white because that's what Jesus has given her to wear through the expiating work of the cross. And he says, from now on, you see yourself clothed in white. I see you clothed in white. Jesus has clothed you in white. Your sins have been expiated. This doctrine is hugely important. How many people, their whole life would change if they understood that they could be clean? They don't need to manage, deal with, deny, blame shift sin that's been committed against them. They don't need to say things like, I'm fine, it doesn't really bother me. They could actually accept sin that's been committed against them and understand the expiating work of Jesus. Last few. Jesus is also point eight, our ransom. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. As a side note, it's very important to tell your people this. Music does not mediate between them and God. Musical style does not mediate between them and God. Translation of Bible does not mediate between them and God. Spiritual giftedness does not mediate between them and God. Church participation does not mediate between them and God. The pastor does not mediate between them and God. Jesus mediates between us and God. And if people don't understand that, when you take away something that is familiar to them, they absolutely melt and they become furious or lost because they think you've taken away the means by which they have a mediated relationship with God. We can't change the music. How will I worship God? Through Jesus. There is one God, one meter between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. Jesus says this himself in Mark's gospel. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The concept here is more of banking and commerce, that every time you sin, you accrue a debt to God. You're indebted. Sin of omission, you didn't do the right thing, there's a debt. Sin of commission, you did the wrong thing, there's a debt. You did it out of pride, there's a debt. You did it out of false motive, there's a debt. You did it out of an impure heart, there's a debt. Out of thought, word, deed, there's a debt. The result is you have a mountain of debt to God. How in the world are you possibly going to pay your debt to God? Some say, well, I'll repay it through karma and I'll reincarnate. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed once to die, then judgment. There is no second chance. Additionally, if you come back, you'll just sin more and make the pile bigger. 
And some people say, but I'll come back and I'll do good and that will reduce the pile. And my answer is always, if you do good, that just means you don't throw anything new on the pile. You're just doing what you're supposed to do, which means you've not reduced the pile. If every day I lose $100 and two days in a row I don't, I haven't reduced my debt. I just haven't accrued any new debt. I said, so even if you reincarnate and live a perfect life, all you've done is what you're supposed to do. That mountain of debt remains forever. Karma is ridiculous. How do you repay your debt to God? And the concept in the Bible is you need a mediator, someone to mediate between you and God. To do so adequately, that person would need to be fully God and fully human. They would need to mediate the debt, right? When you get into debt difficulty, you look for a mediator. And then that payment would need to be made, but you can't make that payment. So you would need a mediator who was both divine and human, who mediated between you and God the Father, and also was willing to pay your debt. That's the concept of ransom. Our debt is to God, and Jesus is our God-man mediator, and he pays our debt. This one works really well with people who are in banking and finance and real estate investment, and people who have huge credit card debt. They really appreciate that gospel. Point nine, Jesus is our example. This is a great one. We may need to yell. I know it's late, but I only get one shot. Jesus is our example. First Peter 2.21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. Jesus suffered and died, giving us an example. Philippians 2 says that Jesus is our example. The theological term for this is Christus exemplar. Okay, now let me do this really carefully. I'll give you a theology to be a biblical charismatic without being a fruity nut job, okay? (laughs) And then there'll be two of us. Okay, so we'll be in this together. (laughs) Jesus Christ is, was God, eternally, fully God, completely. And he came into human history, fully man, fully human being, fully God, fully man. Council of Chalcedon in 451 declared fully God, fully man. They call it the hypostatic union. I absolutely believe that. I completely believe that. The question is, how did Jesus live his life on the earth if Jesus is to be also our example? Some people say he was like Superman. It looks like he's suffering, it looks like he's being tempted, but he's really God and he's kind of faking it. Because God can't be tempted. God can't really suffer. You read Hebrews 4.15, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Instead, we have Jesus And he does sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It's not Superman. Jesus isn't God faking it like Clark Kent. So how does he live his life on earth if his life is our example? I would ask you, how does Jesus live his life on the earth fully human and fully divine? Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says that he set aside his right, and he set aside the constant use of his divine attributes. Jesus didn't cease to be God. Be very careful on that. On this point, not to negate him, but men like Creflo Dollar have said, Jesus wasn't fully God. You can't say that because Jesus forgives sin when he's on the earth and he does things that only God can do. But he sets aside the divine use of his attributes. God doesn't change, but Jesus grows up. Luke 2.42, he grows in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. God knows everything, but Jesus has to learn. So Jesus sets aside the divine rights and the divine constant use of his attributes, though he still possesses them, to live according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, humbly to identify with us. So then the question is, if he's living a fully human life as we do, how in the world is that an example for us? 
How did Jesus live his life? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Charismatics think that the Bible begins in Acts 2. Everything to the left of that is like the, you know, it's the national anthem before the game. Nobody's really paying attention. You know, Acts 2, then it's kickoff. You know, then then it counts. Because that's when the Holy Spirit came. My answer is, who wrote Luke? Luke? Who wrote Acts? Luke. How does he begin Acts? In my former book, what does he do? Puts Luke and Acts together as one continuous book. You go back to Luke. Jesus is called Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't drop first in Acts 2. It drops first at, he drops first at, the baptism of Jesus. It comes down. God the Father speaks. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. There's the whole trinity. And then Jesus is what? Luke 4. Led by the Spirit into 40 days in the wilderness for tempting and testing. They say, Jesus didn't teach like the other guys. He teaches one with anointed authority. That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus does miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a fun study. Read the book of Acts, but first read the book of Luke and look at how the work of the Holy Spirit is a thread right through Luke and Acts. Jesus dies for our sin, rises. Luke's in uh, Acts 1.8, he's standing before his disciples. He says, I'm gonna leave and you're gonna keep doing the kingdom work I was doing, but don't do it yet. First, you need the Holy Spirit to come down on you too. When you do, you be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, all the way to Edinburgh. We're gonna get all the way out there eventually. And then the most amazing thing happens. The Holy Spirit comes and people start living spirit-filled, spirit-led lives, which is the life of Jesus. You're a good charismatic if by definition being spirit-filled means living the life of Jesus. If being spirit-filled means living like the guy with the big throne whose wife looked like she lost a paintball gun war with all the hair, (laughs) you're in serious trouble, okay? You're in trouble. You should quit your job and go get another job because you're hurting our team. People come up to me, they say, do you believe in being spirit-filled? Yes, I believe in living the life of Jesus. Do you get that? How many of you wouldn't feel so weird being a Pentecostal if by definition it meant we do what Jesus did? That feels better, you know? That fits, it works. You don't feel guilty about that. And even the non-Pentecostal, non-charismatics are like, well, I can't really argue with that. That's pretty good, you got me there, that whole Jesus thing. Okay, but in this, the Holy Spirit led Jesus, and we keep going on this, into suffering. Charismatics don't like that. They're like, no, 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 he resurrected, we have victory! We don't suffer anymore! Yes, you will. Philippians 1, it is appointed that you not only believe in Jesus, but suffer for his name. That Jesus was led into suffering, hardship, and death, and you will be too. Now in that, Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. I won't even tell you what it means because I don't know. But we will be perfected through our suffering too. Which means when we suffer, 
we must suffer like Jesus suffered by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God would do something good in us to make us more like Jesus and more appreciative of Jesus, and God would do something through us to give the world a testimony of what it means to suffer with, like, for, by, and through Jesus, willing to pick up our cross and follow him daily. The big omission in charismatic theology is they don't know what to do with suffering and poverty, but if you have a spirit-filled Jesus who's our example, then even when he goes to the cross, he's still a good example for us, even when we suffer. Even when we suffer. So here's what I'm saying. Don't waste your pain, your hardship, your suffering, or your death. You pay so much for it. It costs you so much. It comes at such a high expense. Use it for a witness. Use it for the gospel. Use it like Jesus did. Don't lament and cry. Where's my anointing? Where's my God? Right there. Just as he was with Jesus on the cross. Allowing God to do something in you and through you. One one pastor, he suffered under communist rule. He had this great statement. He said, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. And it's understanding that Through the cross of Jesus, not only do we get salvation, but we learn how to suffer and die well for the sake of the gospel. Last one, perhaps. I'll skip the last two because it's getting late. I'll skip the last two. Seriously? All right. For me, it's only uh, 1.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) Last two. Jesus is our reconciliation. One of the effects of sin is it separates people from God and it separates people from others. We see that where? Genesis 3. They sin immediately. They hide from God. They hide from one another. They cover themselves. They're in shame. Sin has the effect of destroying relationships, separating people. On this point, Ephesians 4, 31 through 5, 2 says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children of God, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. There's the cross, a fragrant offering. There's the cross, and sacrifice to God. Here's what happens. You will be sinned against, and the Bible says you have two options. You become bitter, or you become like Jesus. This for me is a habitual lesson. I, I have a default mode of bitterness. I have a strong sense of justice, not usually when I sin, but moreover when someone sins against me. <laughs> when I sin, I want mercy. When they sin, I want hell. That's what I want for them. And what happens is for me, my life has been marked in large part by lengthy seasons of bitterness. Bitterness is oftentimes not caused by the magnitude of the sin, but the proximity of the offender, meaning the person you love is the person you're most likely to get bitter against, even if they do a little thing. That's why Naomi changes her name to Mara from sweetheart to bitter because she says, quote, the Lord has made me very bitter. She loves the Lord. She didn't feel that God treated her right. She became very bitter. You can become bitter against God. You'll become bitter against your spouse, your kids, your pastor. You're most likely to become bitter against the people that you love the most. And here's where the gospel actually has practical pastoral implications. People come together. Every time I officiate a wedding, I make the bride and the groom face each other, hold hands. And I tell the people who are gathered, there's only two problems with this marriage. 
the man, and the woman. <laughs> Other than that, this is perfect. <laughs> and between the man and the woman will come sin. And they'll have two choices. Bitterness, which leads to wrath, get angry, anger, ready to fight, clamor, yelling at each other, slander, talking behind one another's back, destroying the marriage, or Jesus. And because Jesus died for their sin, their sin need not kill their marriage because Jesus already died. And since Jesus died, he could take away sin and he can reconcile sinners both to himself and to one another. There's a, hor- there's a horizontal and a vertical aspect of the, the cross. It reconciles us to God and it reconciles us to one another. That's why I can fly into another country and sit down with good brothers and in five minutes, we already have a fully reconciled relationship. You can't do that apart from the cross. You can't do that. There is not that kind of reconciliation. So the culture is crying out for community and and for global harmony and for peace and for international unity. And the answer is, Jesus is the only one. We need the Prince of Peace to get shalom. Last one, Jesus is our revelation. Somebody comes up to you and says, who is God? Where do you start? Start at the cross. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Colossians 1.15, you know the great verse. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. That's the whole point. And the centerpiece of Jesus' life is the cross. If you really want to know who God is, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Here's what you see. You see the perfect, the perfect kissing of love and justice and holiness and mercy at the cross. God is fully good, fully just, fully holy, fully loving, fully merciful, fully forgiving. You see at the cross a God that is unlike every other religious concept of God. Some would say, how could a God who loves us be so bloodthirsty? I say, our God is not a God who asks for blood, he offers his own. That's a great God. Our God is a God who puts himself in our place, pours out his wrath, his justice, his holiness on himself, and extends to us unmerited favor, undeserved love, justifies us, imputes his righteousness to us, gives us imparted righteousness with a new heart, new joy, new power, the Holy Spirit, a new life forever with him through Jesus. No one understands anything about God apart from the cross. You could talk about the attributes of God all day. You could talk about the communicable and incommunicable attributes. All of them are fine and well and good. You start talking about the cross, that's where it all makes sense. God is loving, I see it. God is holy, I see it. God is just, I see it. God is all-knowing, knows my past, present, and future sins and could atone for them in the past on Jesus. That makes sense. I see all of the attributes of God, all of the revelation of God, all comes together at the cross of Jesus. Dear friend, Jesus is our substitute, our victor, our redeemer, our new covenant sacrifice, our justifier, our propitiator, our expiation, our ransom, our example, our reconciler, and the revelation of God. The revelation of God. And I'll close with this, perhaps. 
in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. You guys know this text. Now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel is continual. We must continually be reminded of it. We must continually remind our people of it. Because if we assume it, it is not long before they deny it. So we must assume nothing. You say, but I feel like I'm telling them all the time. Paul says, I'm reminding you, brothers. They're already Christians. Let me remind you, brothers. Continual, continual, continual explanation of the cross. Of the gospel, I preached to you. So it's continual and it's proclamational. It must be preached. It can't be shared. It can't be recommended. It must be proclaimed. It must be preached that the Spirit who inspires the text also anoints the communicator and illuminates the hearer so that Jesus is magnified which you receive. So it must be personal. This is faith. Someone has to personally receive this truth in which you stand and by which you are being saved. That regeneration, that filling of the gospel gap. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. It's essential. This is something you must continually believe. For I deliver to you as of first importance. So it is in every way central. It's of first importance. You can't teach marriage apart from the cross. You can't teach parenting apart from the cross. You can't teach friendship apart from the cross. You can't teach work apart from the cross. You can't teach anything apart from the cross of Jesus. Because it is of first importance. That means it precedes anything else you're teaching on. And it makes sense of everything else you will teach on. He goes on to say, for what I receive, that the gospel is eternal. It gets passed from one generation to the next without any modification. Paul says to the Galatians, if anyone changes it, they're sent from Satan, they're a demon, and they're going to hell, so don't follow them. That Christ, it's Christological. It's all about Jesus. Say the name of Jesus all the time. It's the name that's above every other name. Keep telling them about Jesus. If you use the name Jesus, your hearers will use the name Jesus. If you answer all the questions with Jesus, they'll answer all their friends' questions with Jesus. The key to evangelism is to make sure that it's always only all about Jesus. And people will understand that's how you answer all the questions. Jesus. He goes on to say, that it is penal. Christ died. A penalty must be paid for sin, for our sins, that it is substitutional. In accordance with the scriptures, it is biblical that he was buried and on the third day he rose in accordance with the scriptures. It is eschatological. It shows us our future and our eternal state and it reminds us that this life is so exceedingly short and that forever is a really long time. I'll pray for you. Father God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our substitute. You died in our place for our sins. You are a victor. You conquered our enemies of Satan and demons. You are a redeemer. You've liberated us from slavery to sin. You are a new covenant sacrifice that you shed your blood in our place for our sins. That you are our justifier, that our righteousness is gifted to us from you.
that you are a propitiation, that there is now no condemnation for we who are in Christ, that you are expiation, that we are no longer seen as defiled and impure and dirty, but clothed in white, that you are a ransom, that you have paid the great debt that we owe, that you are our example, that we can win and lose, we can suffer and enjoy, we can live and die following your example by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are a reconciler, that we can be loved by you and love you, and that we can have loving, ongoing relationships, including marriage, with those here on the earth. And that, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that on the cross we see the perfect revelation of God. We know who our God is when we look at the cross. And Jesus, we love you. We thank you for that. And it is my prayer that you would ignite passion in my brothers and sisters through the Holy Spirit to only and always proclaim everything in light of the cross. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.